from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, president of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Patrick, how are you doing? What have you been up to? Very good. Busy days, busy days. Um, Well, I had the very good fortune this week to be in North Africa to meet some folks to talk about fertilizer in in Africa and looking at pathways to decarbonize fertilizer, which is fantastic uh, because as we we all know, the opportunities in some of these emerging uh, markets or at least non-traditional markets, shall we say, is, is really actually quite stellar from a decarbonized hydrogen derivatives perspective. So really great talking to folks who are on the ground looking at the potential to develop projects, but also to build new industries. And it's just really, really cool. So that was great. Where else? I suppose closer to home, uh, we're obviously uh, coming into conference season here in the US with what, Sarah weeks in, in a few short weeks now, and the ramp up is, is well underway. But we're also um, looking at the end of the commentary period for 45V uh, comments, and also the hydrogen hubs are under the way. So this is going to be a, I think, a more tangible and perhaps rubber hits the road kind of version of the conference season. So it's going to be a dynamic, fun and interesting uh, kind of few few weeks, few months. What about yourself? What have you been up to? Well, I actually just got back from San Francisco and it had been about five years since I'd been to the West Coast, which was pretty crazy. But it was one of the McKinsey Green Business Building hyperscaling events. And uh, it was it was very, very a lot of energy on the, on the ground, a lot of people just developing really interesting things, ways to get these projects just moving faster. And I mean, the main event is usually is in Stockholm and they expect 500 people or something like that. But uh, this event was supposed to be smaller and it was about 500 people. So um, it was really exciting to be there. And, and the team that does sustainability and hydrogen are just phenomenal people. It's it's a really wonderful team. And then before that, I was at Hivolution in um, Paris. And this year uh, we added, through CBC, we added a finance day to Hivolution. So the last day was actually a finance day that Adamo Scarenci and I uh, chaired, which essentially just meant we were, we were trying to um, herd a number of, of really brilliant cats about finance in uh, hydrogen um, and derivatives. And we pulled them all together into a day that was a, a super success. And, um, and there were really um, wonderful speakers on everything from traditional financing to, I mean, I did the keynote on, on, on project financing, but also we talked about insurance and um, ECAs and just every different type of tool that we might use to get these things moving faster um, and that, that was, I think, extremely successful. And hopefully next year we'll also have a repeat of that. And one of the people that I invited to that is, is one of the best speakers I know on uh, export credit agencies, which is 
Patrick um, Rosenquist, and he gave a, a fantastic presentation and agreed to come onto the show. So um, I'll give a little background on him before we introduce the interview. He is a senior vice president at Denmark's Export and Investment Fund, which is um, pronounced IFO, with a special focus on wind energy and power to X. Many listeners may have heard me speak of Denmark's Export Credit Agency, or ECA, as EKF, um, which is what it was called until last year, or until, you know, basically until that year ago. Until last year, Patrick was at EKF, um, but IFO is now the result of a merger of the three state funds. So um, Vaxfonden, which is the growth fund, EKF, which is the export credit agency, and the Danish Green Investment Fund. And they're all subsidiaries now under IFO um, starting in January of last year. So Patrick is a renewable energy and infrastructure financing professional. He has 14 plus years of experience in originating, analyzing, negotiating, and structuring renewable energy assets at EKF, now IFO. And export credits and international non-recourse finance are some of his key focus areas. And he's really pushing the boundaries of creativity to reduce risk for P2X projects worldwide. I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, conversation. Well, with that, let's get him on the line. Hi, Patrick. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Alicia. Good to see you and hear you. I, I know everyone is really excited to hear about uh, what you work on and, and, and what your organization is doing. Um, but before telling us about the Export and Investment Fund of Denmark, which I believe is IFO, maybe you could share a bit about yourself and the background that brought you here today? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in structured finance throughout my career. So I've been doing infrastructure finance, mainly renewable energy assets. So I come from particular a wind background doing project finance. And I've been working with on and offshore wind assets, Europe and Asia, around the world, and financing that on behalf of EKF previously and now on, on behalf of IFO. So Doing that, I had a broad network into the renewable energy space, in particular the wind space, doing electrons and, and protons and putting that, that into the grid. There's a natural development towards, in the green transition, what we cannot electrify or energy efficiency. Of course, we need to look into the hard to abate sectors. There's a natural push from the industry, from the Danish industry that, that I'm trying to support, as well as sort of the financing community to go into the hydrogen space, and then alongside sort of a, a government push to, to look into this. So for me, there's sort of been a natural professional progression towards hydrogen. It's been personal interest, part of it, and part of it has also sort of just been, well, that's where the transactions have taken me. That's where the exporters have taken me. That's where the business is going. And, and I think when I started out venturing from renewable electricity into hydrogen, it was a little bit of a weird thing when you went from meeting 5,000 people at a conference to 40 people in a basement, uh, which, is, <laughs> which, is, which is basically how it went. But, but it's, been, it's been quite a journey. And, and we are, I am looking to, alongside IFO, to, to finance renewable energy assets and then push that into hydrogen because there's going to be a lot of renewable energy. We need to do something about it. And that puts me towards uh, the hydrogen side. And, and, and I guess that's also where, where I met you a couple of times over the years in conferences, in meetings, in, in panel discussions where there's sort of been a natural flow into, into this industry. 
Yeah, and um, Patrick, it's uh, really fantastic to have you on the show and, um, you know, replacing the other Patrick, at least temporarily for today, um, our co-host partner in crime. I'm going to ask the dumb question because I get to do that a lot, which is good fun. Most people probably don't fully understand what an export credit agency is. We've had quite a lot of interesting acronym based organizations on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. So it'd be fantastic as our first export credit agency on the podcast, if you could explain a little bit about what they do, the sort of tools and products that they offer, and then how that's relevant for companies and for developers who are working in the hydrogen space. Perfect. Yeah. So, and, and thanks for that, Chris. The ECA world, e- uh, export credit agency world is a niche industry. It's it's a lot of financing sort of tools that are needed sometimes and sometimes not needed when doing finance and, and financing big infrastructure projects. But behind the scenes, it's actually a pretty widely used, I would call a trade policy tool. So a lot of countries have it. They form and establish export credit agencies to promote sort of national interest of trade policies. Some of us are more than 100 years old. Some of us are relatively new. We're all government-owned and, and guaranteed different setups in each country, but but there's sort of a clear login to the, to the government, the host government of each ECA. The ECAs, just to sort of put it into perspective, finance around 100 billion US dollars a year in trade finance so it's so it's big numbers and it's it's from everything i think the smallest deal i've ever done was one thousand uh, dollars and the biggest one it was one billion euro uh, transfer mifo so it's in, anything between those we can do and some of the ecas can even do bigger tickets that means that that we often bring big pockets that's easy when you're government owned and guaranteed you know, somebody has to pick up the bill. It's taxpayer money, of course. In in the long run, we all have to sort of balance, not lose too much, not make too much. We can't subsidize specific industries. And, and that means that ECAs like like us in IFO or Le Hermes in Germany or BPA France out of out of uh, out of France and and UK out of UK, we all adhere to some regulation. And that regulation is called the OECD arrangement. So as part of the OECD to ensure sort of a natural flow of trade and and not unfair competition, we all try to do the best to adhere to to this arrangement. This sets some limits to what we can do. That means minimum pricing for each project we participate in. How long can the tenders be, how can the repayment profile be, all that sort of sets a limit to what we can do. That also means that private market can then go in and do all the rest. Where we do go in, we do it together with the private market. So often you'll see ECAs working closely, closely together with a one bank or, or several banks. So ECAs sort of borders between that, well, there should be a private market doing this. The capacity isn't there. So the ECA steps in with a with a guarantee or loan. And I think coming into to sort of what, what's, what are the tools that ECAs can actually uh, offer and how do you put them into play with the private market for the projects is, is often a guarantee tool. So we write a guarantee to, to a bank or an institutional investor or, or whoever saying, well, if something happens, we repay you. And, and a good example could be a, a project financing. There's a, there's a hydrogen facility somewhere. It's a green hydrogen facility. So there's some solar and wind power uh, and, and there's an electrolyzer and related infrastructure. That is all, all owned by an, an SPV. That, is, that SPV is then financed by project finance, so non-recourse finance. And there's an equity owner putting in equity. And the rest is financed through senior debt. The senior debt then mainly comes from commercial banks. And if 
there's a none, there's a default under the repayment of the loans, the ECAs then step in and through the guarantee scheme has to pay out. So that means that the banks can take, uh, let's say a project finance is rated BB or BB plus or something, then and replace that internally, get capital relief through a, from our side, a AAA guarantee. And that for the banks, that means the zero uh, capital weight or, or something like that. So, so it really changes the risk profile of how the financial community, the private community is looking at a at a project because they get to offload a lot of risk into the ECAs. And I would say that's the main tools of, of the ECAs. It's to offload risk from the private market and add capacity where it's needed. And so again, uh, if I can do a quick follow-up on this one, Patrick, first, in some way, the way sh- people should think about this is more, um, yeah, if I think of other sort of multilateral type quasi-government agencies, you know, if I think about someone like the World Bank, they have their MEGA platform, which is sort of political risk insurance where you're providing this kind of coverage. You're effectively providing a kind of commercial uh, coverage protection really as opposed to kind of a political risk coverage protection right but it's again it's this this unique role of being quasi sovereign that lets you step in and deal with that market failure effectively or maybe not market failure but just reduces the risk premium that inhibit it, that inhibits market growth by taking risks that really only an organization like yours which is quasi government can Exactly. Or just add capacity, right? So often we see that in a project, let's say the ECAs take up to 80% of, of the risk, the 20% then remains with, with the banks. And these guarantees are then both politically and, and commercial cover. So if there's a default for whatever reason, then the ECAs are supposed to step in and then then repay uh, under that uh, under that loan based on, on the guarantee that, that we offer. Actually, the ECAs often offer that sort of political risk insurance by Mika as well. So we have our own little uh, copy-paste product from, from Mika, uh, and, and we work quite quite closely with them. Uh, but the idea is that on a project, we take all the commercial or political risk, there's an unpayment, and then the ECAs have to, have to pay. And I think that it's all about adding capacity to what the private market can do, because the private market can add a lot of liquidity, but sort of that risk capacity to take risk on, on some of these huge projects that we are seeing coming online within the, the hydrogen space. We can name the NEOM deal in, in, in Saudi. We, we can name these huge uh, green hydrogen projects in in, in Saudi and, and, and Oman and, and, and in Australia that, that Alicia is partly responsible for, they're going to need a lot of risk cover. They're going to need a lot of risk to be distributed and, and the banks can't take it all and they shouldn't. And that's why the governments will, will step in. And, and, and Chris, I think you're right. It's a market failure, lack of capacity. And that's why I have these government institutions to step in because if the private market wants to do it, these A's will step out. Of course, we, we like to do deals, but if the private banks are willing to do it, there's not really a reason for, for us to, to really be there. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, actually, I've, I've seen a few multilaterals um, be very competitive in markets with the private sector, and that is a bit frustrating as an investor because, you know, you are willing to take on yeah, this. Exactly. And now you're competing with, with someone with a lot of backing. I've never run into that with you, though. Nope. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but I have to be honest and say that, that sometimes we, 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 we are right on the border of that. And, and it's a tricky balancing act to do. We do a lot of offshore wind in the UK. And, and sometimes it's about adding capacity. So it's not 100 banks on a deal, but maybe 20 deals on a uh, 20 banks on a deal, and then and then one ECA to sort of to add capacity and have an efficient process. But but I think it's it's it 
understand the frustration and we also like we work really closely with EIB and IFC and 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 then you have DCAs and then you have the private institutions and that balance getting that mix right is an ever moving target that that we will keep on arguing about for forever hopefully because that means that the or at some point maybe the private market can take it all there's no need for us but but right now I I definitely see why why there's there's a discussion on this right because where, where should we be where shouldn't we be and and it's a tricky balancing act but I think in particular within hydrogen Green hydrogen and 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 also some of some of the other forms of, of of hydrogen. There will be a need for somebody to come in and take risk and add big capacity and big pockets. Yeah, yeah and it's really encouraging to hear you talk about that. Sorry, your theme I wanted to pick up on a little bit with Patrick because I do think that's a great theme area, and, and I I guess it's uh, it just as a comment rather than a question because Alicia's got the question, but just as a comment, I think Alicia, you're so on the money that it's so frequent that you hear people talk about crowding in, but often it's not really crowding in. It's actually coming in when someone else is already there and actually ends up with, and I guess it's because it's government money, everyone's worried about, I don't want to lose government money. But then if you're so risk averse, you're only coming in when the private sector is already there, you sort of go, well, what's the point exactly. of you you being there? So there is this interesting dichotomy where you're going, your whole point is to take risk, which means you could lose money versus it's government money. I don't want to lose it. So um, yeah, tough one to, to square. Anyway, sorry, Alicia, over to you. Yeah, I think actually, um, in my experience, it's the multilateral development banks that are often um, going on head to head. It's not the ECAs. In my experience, the ECAs are always helpful. <laughs> in one way or I can only agree to that. I completely agree. Yeah, Because it, the insurance is, I mean, obviously, the guarantees are, are, are great, but also there's other forms of insurance. Um, there's just, you, you really help to, to um, taper off all the different types of risk. And and then I feel in general, uh, my understanding, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but uh, when you were at EKF, you were a pure ECA. Yeah. And now as IFO, are you kind of an ECA and a multilateral development bank? Or are, you, are you a bit broader than an ECA? Could you explain how you're different from other ECAs? Sure. Well, well, well in, in IFO, we are, the, we are, of course, the ECA of Denmark, and then we're the National Promotional Bank of Denmark. And, and I would say the main focus is, besides from the ECA business, is to promote growth in Denmark. So we're not going to go in as a multilateral and offer equity investments in, in Africa or anything like that in, in the near term. I, th- I think it's mainly to promote stuff in Denmark. So And, and it's green transition, it's job growth in Denmark, and, and it's a little bit of a, of, of a mix between three government funds that we were in the past, uh, EKF, and then two other funds, one called VEX Fund and then Denmark's Green Investment Fund. So that's green green stuff, which we still do, and then growth in, in Denmark. So all those three merged together. Denmark is too small of a country to have uh, three funds competing and, and, and doing all that. So, so it really made a lot of sense of, of merging us. Compared to other countries, ECAs, we are, we're small. We have a professional board. Other ECAs do have that as well. But our whole board is made up of people from, from the private industry. That sort of guides, of course, there's a there's an act on us to say, well, this is the way we should be uh, uh, behave and 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 do all of that. But but sort of the policy mandate is also very much uh, provided by our private appointed board, and rather small compared to some other CAs, and that also means that we're a little bit more flexible on on some points. I would say PPI France, just to mention them, I think they have some somewhat of a similar mandate of both uh, doing business in France and, and also supporting the export credit agency side. But we're all different. Uh, the rules that we have to adhere to is the same, but we're all different in terms of how the sort of the ju- local jurisdiction or sort of the act on DCA is, is made up of. And compared to other ECAs, we're a little bit niche in terms of being 
70-80% of our balance sheet is renewable energy. So we really come from renewable energy and most of that is wind energy. And that's quite reflective of sort of Denmark's capital good exporter base, which is, uh, for us, it's been fortunate enough that both Vestas and Siemens Gamesa and a lot of other sort of Danish sub-suppliers to the wind industry have been doing stuff out of Denmark, producing in Denmark, doing R&D, and then being global players. So we became quickly, uh, since the 2009, 2010, something like that, we, we changed into being more, more and more renewable-based. And uh, a lot of renewable is project finance. So from a from a ECA house, we're very niche in terms of most of our turnover over the years have been project not uh, project finance, not recourse finance. So the whole house is set up to work a, just like a bank. I'll say a lot of other ECAs are, are doing similar work, uh, and then in other sectors, a lot of the banks or ECAs then then have a, have an oil and gas experience, agriculture experience, and then then trying to perhaps pivot a little bit from the from the oil and gas side into to more renewable side but but we've been fortunate that it's been been a lot of renewable which really uh, puts us in place into doing uh, a lot of a lot of the hydrogen deals we're looking into now I'm going to pull Chris and ask a couple of questions <laughs> <laughs> on top of that one I heard that you you no longer will support um, oil and gas yeah. uh, investments so that you guys have taken a stand on that which is is great to hear um, you know, in the renewables world. But but also, I was just curious if you could tell us a little bit about any limitations to your geographic purview. I don't know um, amongst if all eight different ECAs have different um, criteria for by geography, and, and it'd be great to hear, you know, what, what the situation is with you. Well, well the, the OECD arrangement sort of governs this minimum pricing tool I, I referred to earlier. And in the OECD, there's, there are country classifications. So each year, some country analysts, I want to call them nerds. I can do that because I used to be one of them, then goes in and and, and sort of classify each country from classification sort of uh, OECD high-income country into all the way down to uh, close to default. You cannot do business in the country. So let's take North Korea, South Sudan. It's tricky to do business there or, or we, we are sanctioned. We can't do it. So it's everything from sort of descending scale. And of course, the higher the country classification, the higher the premium we have to charge. So that's that's these minimum pricing that that we have to charge. And when we then look at from a sort of perspective in terms of what we can actually do, well, we're global. We we, we don't really have any markets we can't do anything in unless there's a there's a sanction. So Syria, North Korea, these kind of markets are off limits. Uh, but we do business in very tricky jurisdictions as well. So we've done a we we we've done quite a bit of business in Argentina, in, in Dia Congo, in, in, in Mongolia, tricky markets where normal financial sort of institutions will say, no, thank you. And then DCA step in to then take on that role. And uh, we have exposure in, in around 200 countries globally, which is uncommon for uh, of institutions of our size. Some of it is, is very small exposures, of course, and some are, are quite heavy. We are, we are, for example, quite heavy in, in Taiwan. So Geopolitically, we are we're strained and, and have a concentration risk in, in Taiwan, uh, and and that that's a result of, of the offshore wind expansion uh, that we did. It, it's super interesting, and so um, I guess that also means that Efo is a little bit unique in that when you're talking about hydrogen, you're really only talking about green hydrogen and green hydrogen derivatives. So, you know, if you're talking about blue well, hydrogen or other solutions, that's actually quite unique in in the export credit agency the world. Well, we no, actually we could do blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen. 
Definitely. And, and, and I think that the fossil fuel ban for us if is there's no abatement. So, so I mean, if, if there's no carbon sequestration, no capture, then we could not do it. We have to adhere to the EU taxonomy. What we cannot do, which is a sort of follow, uh, fossil fuel policy from the Danish government, is to do new oil and gas, do a gas-fired power plant with no carbon capture. Uh, so we have a very small window where we, in theory, could do a new gas plant with carbon capture that is closing uh, in half a year or something. But but that's the government policy. What we also signed up to do is to be part of an alliance between other ECAs, not to do uh, to to have a net zero approach in 2045, and and that means that we look at our whole portfolio and saying, okay, how's that looking, and and signing up to that. That naturally means a, a ban to do new more fossil uh, fuel projects. I think we we will see blue hydrogen. We see that as an as a temporary solution to the lack of green hydrogen. And we will be doing blue hydrogen projects. I'm pretty sure of that. And and at some point, we'll, we have to face that out as well. But for the moment being, we see a demand for blue hydrogen where we can come in and, and play a role. And in particular, if it fits with the EU taxonomy, we probably have want to see something a little bit higher than, than the EU taxonomy minimum guidelines. But then we could do blue uh, hydrogen. Okay, no, super helpful. I mean, you, and, and obviously, I think you spoke a little bit, you just touched on sort of the COP28 announcement around the Net, uh, Net Zero Export Credit Agency Alliance there. So um, good to kind of get that. Uh, a little more color. I mean, maybe just just to unpack that a little bit more. And then I know Alicia also wanted to dive in uh, on a couple of other sort of aspects of that organization. But one sort of question is sort of why did you feel there was the need to create this organization? And what is it specifically that by coming together as a alliance that you're hoping to achieve that on your own, you felt would have been harder to do? Well, I, I think telling the financial community ECA financing for fossil fuels is off is a very strong statement. ECAs have been instrumental in financing fossil fuel projects and oil and gas exploration, coal exploration over the years. There's no doubt about that. If you look back at our track record as a combined industry, we've done a lot of fossil fuels and we are responsible for a lot of the bigger ones. It's been a combination of ECAs and commercial banks and some IFIs and multilaterals. So so we've really done our part in, in financing the expansion of fossil fuels globally. Coming together and saying we as a group now it's five, six ECAs that are that signed up to it, getting more and more online to it, it means it sends an even stronger message to the financial community to say we're not doing this anymore. And being alone about it it didn't really impact us that much because we mainly did renewables. Uh, but getting in coordination with other ECAs saying that this is the stand we take, this is where we're going now, and, and this is this is where we're saying uh, no more fossil fuels, it actually changes things. And and right now it's it's uh, it's EDC, that means it's Canada, it's Denmark, it's Sweden, it's uh, and it's and it's the UK, and then uh, Etihad uh, out of the UAE and Seche uh, out of Spain and, and the Kazakh export, which is the ECA out of out of Kazakhstan. Three of them are affiliate members, and then the, we, we, we were the founding members. And and we're getting more and more interest from other ECAs to join this, and, and jointly we represent quite a big chunk of the global ECA issuance each year. Well, I mean, that obviously is really going to be helpful in, uh, in financing um, hydrogen projects going forward. I'm just curious if you could tell us any targeted plans that you have for either IFO or for, um, I think we agreed to drop the N on uh, Nizuka, <laughs> the, 
on the Net Zero Export Credit Agency Alliance that you were just speaking of. Are, are there any targeted plans for, you know, specifically within renewables or hydrogen or derivatives? And what kind of policy tools are you looking to use or, or sort mm. of encouraging uh, lobbying for? Well, the, the, the target is just net zero, and, and that goes up across all industries that the ECA is involved in, and they're often a reflection of whatever that country is doing. So, of course, this, this is a more loosely than saying, I want to do X amount of hyd- green hydrogen in 2030. This is net zero approach in 2050 by all the ECAs that signed up to it. Uh, IFO's approach is 2045, uh, but, but a lot of countries and a lot of companies I know that have these net zero uh, ambitions. For us, well, again, 70, 80% of what we do is already renewable uh, and, and setting a target of in 2030, it's going to be 50% renewable didn't really seem that ambitious. So I think our plan is to continue to be at that, that level and keep on doing uh, green transition stuff and, um, and, 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 and business and then move outside of the wind sector is really where we're pushing it. And hydrogen is the obvious one. Vessel financing uh, is another one related infrastructure, doing building efficiency, district heating, all of these things that, that, that contribute to the green transition is, is a key part of, of what we want to do. Annually, we do around 3 billion uh, US dollars in, in renewable energy. Uh, on average, and and I think that's going to be that plus a little bit more per per annum that we're going to do each year. And I guess probably for our listeners, and you know, now we've kind of done a lot of sort of that additional color and background. How big a piece of the portfolio, Patrick? I mean, probably the last question for me. How big a uh, sort of piece of the portfolio, or what sort of field do you have around hydrogen as part of what you guys will do as an organization going forward? You know, it's an industry where you know, depending on the hype, I guess, and I'm going to use that word, although it's a dangerous word. One could imagine that all you do is hydrogen for the next hundred years, and that's a hundred percent of your book. And on the other end of it, you do you know very very little. But you know, from mm. a sort of IFO strategic perspective, sort of how big a role do you see hydrogen being within the portfolio of different decarbonization um, technologies and projects that you're likely to finance in the coming years? We actually hope that it'll be one of those sort of business area, industry areas that's going to take up a a significant part of the portfolio. So we're talking about 20, 25% in 2030, then enhancing that into something bigger because we do look at other sectors, but but uh, from, from our sort of internal portfolio perspective, I really see the hydrogen being the one that can push our portfolio. So we have a lot of hopes for this. And I think it's reflective of what we also see a lot of commercial banks doing. They've been, they have oil and gas people, divisions of 250, 300 people that's got to do some business each year. All of them are being moved into low carbon fuels and chemical divisions, whatever they, they call it, different stuff. But it's but it's all about taking sort of that revenue they had from the oil and gas business. They want to do something else with it. They have molecule experience, which is really needed in, in the hydrogen space. And they're being moved over to do low low carbon fuels and chemicals. And and that's where the hydrogen really gets its hype from. So it's not just ECAs or, or, or IFIs talking about it. It's commercial banks that are setting up huge division and seeing where do we get the revenue from. Well, that's going to be from the hydrogen side uh, and, and other transition projects. So so for us, it's it's really a matter of, of hardcore normal business in 2030 and 2035. This will be a integral part of our strategy and integral part of our income and, and revenue. It's what's going to pay the bills going forward. So this isn't just about, I, I got to get a salary as well. We got to pay the electricity bill. And 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 most and a lot of that will hopefully come from, from hydrogen. So, so as you can hear, we're quite optimistic about it. 
we haven't done like everybody else that much business so far. The only thing we've done is is co-finance uh, an e-methanol plant in in Denmark, uh, one of the first, uh, and then uh, a factory doing electrolyzers. So these all I would say really important deals, but but compared to sort of the size we want to be and the way we want to grow, it's still smaller deals. But it gives us the experience to do the next kind of deals we want to do. Right, and that's really great to hear, obviously, um, <laughs> from everything about hydrogen uh, team. <laughs> um, I, I can think of a number of projects that uh, maybe you want to look at. But um, I also just thought, as exciting as it is that you're, you're going to be focusing on hydrogen and growing it out and, and, and obviously planning to do a lot more deals um, than, than previously, are there any exciting initiatives in particular that you're looking at over the horizon? Is is there an area within uh, hydrogen that you are specifically um, very bullish about? There's no doubt the, the green ammonia and e-methanol will pay a big part in sort of the large deals that we're going to look into. These projects will be sort of those gigawatt scale at some point in Chile and MENA and in Canada and Australia. These are the deals that 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 will sort of be in a size where you can really see it's going to move balance sheets. So I'm really excited about those in the future. Uh, in the shorter run, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. It's the US that's pulling the attention of every banker and lawyer and engineer out there. You can you can feel a pull where things are actually moving, but that's mainly on the blue hydrogen side. I would say the green hydrogen side is still struggling in the US. So the blue hydrogen is getting a, a lot of support from from the Inflation Reduction Act. There, there's a lot of implementation. I know that, but you can actually see project being uh, getting closer and closer to FID because that's what we need in this sector. I know that uh, FIDs and financial closes and actually getting contracts signed instead of uh, talks about it. So so the the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act and the implementation of all the different European uh, uh, initiatives, because there's a lot of initiatives, uh, and it's about focusing in, in in all of these European initiatives, for the, in particular for the smaller scale hydrogen, let's say 50, 100, 200 megawatt electrolyzer projects. Those are coming through uh, funding from Brussels and, and, and national projects. The, the big scale, everybody understands the US Inflation Reduction Act scheme. So, so I think that is a pivotal event in terms of financing uh, hydrogen projects. Well, great. I mean, I think it was been really um, a pleasure to have you on the show and, and to explain some of these things in more detail. Uh, I've always been excited about the ECAs, but I don't think I've managed to pass on exactly what it means. So it was great to have um, somebody uh, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Um, and uh, really, thank you so much for joining us. And I think we're going to get a lot of follow-up from from uh, the fans of this show uh, for this. Well, thank you very much, uh, Alicia. And thank you very much for having me. And I really hope that I was able to, uh, to provide some insight into the niche nerd ver- uh, world that, that ECAs are. And, and hopefully the listeners uh, uh, got a glimpse of it. And and, and, uh, and, and and hopefully it would be great to have some questions into how it could work and how it could play out on, on real-life projects because that's, that's where the tool actually works instead of just talking about it. Exactly. It's a cool world, by the way, not nerdy. Yeah. yeah, cool world, cool, fun world. <laughs> so Patrick, what did you think of the interview? Anything really um, catch your fancy or um, anything new that you learned? Ooh, catch my fancy. Um, I, I Look, the, the, number one, I, I have to say, and, and, and kudos to, to, to Patrick uh, for taking us through and in, in I would say, you know, a good amount of detail 
exactly what you know these mechanisms do how how they're structured and spread and, and their focus points and, and i think a few takeaways from that of a particular note you know one uh, he rightly flagged the uh, transitional kind of emphasis they have in terms of their you know uh, financing of you know or non-financing of of fossil fuel kind of interests as well right and and looking at um you know building out kind of capacity to towards you know perhaps higher risk projects in that respect or newer projects that have a, a risk premium and and that speaks to the mechanism as well itself so i thought that was one big piece i think the second one which really jumped out and uh, maybe to 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 park on we're we're in a tightening you know capital market this you know it costs more to raise money now it, debt costs more this is the the realities across the globe and as a consequence of that looking at these sort of mechanisms who have the space to to go into both you know advanced economies and emerging economies and to support different types of projects and finance them in different different structures and ways is a really dynamic mechanism but also they have a mandate to support things that the private sector isn't ready for um and or is unwilling to finance and in in that sort of environment as we are still talking about an emerging sector and in industry it's it's probably something i would say that becomes more valuable and more necessary and and if there's folks out there looking to finance projects right now this might be something to 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 take a turn at and and actually spend some time um looking at these these mechanisms and as patrick rightly flagged there's mechanisms in france there's there's mechanisms in the uk in germany etc like these are these are tools that exist in this environment you know maybe you should be thinking about uh, especially in our current financial conditions what about you alicia uh, much like you i mean i think it's great to hear the danish government set a ban on all public financing and support for fossil fuel projects that are unabated Um so you know if if they're abated if they they do the carbon capture if they, they do everything correctly that's fine but a uh, good old oil and gas is not going to be supported and that's just a pretty bold move akin to you know Swiss re uh refusing to provide uh reinsurance to oil and gas industry this is a big deal and it's it's going to affect the difference between doing an oil and gas a traditional oil and gas fossil fuels project and doing something that is renewable it's going to really benefit the renewables to have some of these um external negative externalities internalized finally <laughs> um so i i think that that's like really exciting um i also you know despite talking about ecas quite a lot and 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 always thinking that they were sort of a a secret weapon that that is really useful for projects because they offer not just the finance but, but also ways to um deal with a lot of different risk providing insurance and guarantees and lots of different tools um that are, are extremely helpful for for a project but i myself was even surprised that that ifo can do any market i i just assumed because they they happen a lot with project finance in developing countries so you would typically have sort of a multilateral development bank and it's partnered up with an ECA and then there's also you know different entities that are are more focused on developing countries uh, i assume that they would have you know only select countries that they could use this investment in and and actually there's no country that that they can't uh, do an, do a project in and so well i take that back obviously they cannot do iran or any of the sanctioned countries but um you know everything else so that is actually um 
fantastic news. And then another one that I have said a lot, I hope I haven't said it on this podcast, um, so people aren't sick of it, but I still find it uh, amazing how creative iPhone can be because it's not just the Vestas or the Topso or all the, the names that you recognize from Denmark as, um, you know, the equipment providers that are going to get this financing and, and make your project a lot less expensive. It's out, it's also Hisada, which is a new electrolyzer company, you know, that we've had on the podcast who got an investment from Vestas. So because they got an investment from Vestas, they can now actually access the support from the Danish government in the form of these ECA uh, financing. And then Siemens Gamesa, which is a German company, they make a part in Denmark. So this ECA can also support, um, you know, even when you purchase Siemens Gamesa for your projects. And so that is just a big whole world that I did not know um, was possible. And I, and I think that IFO in particular is really leading uh, what there's maybe five or six other big ECAs that are, that are really leading the charge on how can we be as creative as possible. And, and I find that um, it's great news and really want to get it out there that, that people can find um, financing in different pockets, things they may not have heard of. Um, and, you know, maybe people have not done a great job of, of, sort of marketing, but uh, we want to make sure that people know they exist because otherwise, you know, things are just sitting in pockets, not being spent. And that's the worst. <laughs> if we have the money and it's it's earmarked uh, to spend to, to make things better, you know, let's get that money out the door and, and let's get these projects moving. So um, I, I think it was a great interview. And, you know, I just am so happy that Patrick and, and, and people like him um, are, are just wake up every morning trying to make this easier to do, you know, more supportive of, of, of this transition and, and faster. And, and it's, you know, we're lucky. We're lucky to have people like him. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And I think just to reiterate that, that point around these financing mechanisms being, I, I suppose, somewhat out of vogue, right. In, in terms of the last few years, the, you know, the thinking of more kind of conventional project financing and structuring and not necessarily looking at these mechanisms, but, you know, to the point, maybe now is the time, right? And, and you know, especially given that we, we can't lose momentum, uh, it's, it's you know, the imperative to, for action is now. And, you know, it's really encouraging that, that there are tools out there that maybe, you know, to your point, maybe we're overlooked for, you know, slightly bizarre or kind of maybe just information gap or awareness gap issues and uh i think patrick's done a done a great job in uh providing uh some some insight into that particular space and uh hopefully there's folks listening to this or who are going to hear this and think hey this is another road so yeah really really a great one for sure Definitely. And if anyone listening, um, you have more questions about it or you, you think this might be some way that uh, would be helpful to your projects, um, you know, please don't hesitate to drop us a line. We're always happy to hear from you, um, things that you want to hear more about and uh, people you want to hear more from. Uh, and uh, it's, it's been great to share this episode with you. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com 
Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.